So if you have your Bible, uh, please turn with me to the 21st chapter of Luke as we continue to make our way in through this uh, Gospel of Luke together. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 33 today. And, and that's almost to the end of this chapter here. So it's almost to the end of chapter 21. And at the same time, it is continuing on a, a passage which Jesus has been addressing to his disciples and possibly a crowd as well uh, that, has, that have gathered and they're hearing this discourse, this teaching about events that are both near and far away at the same time. Now this section of scripture, this text, this portion of scripture is a very important text for us. And at the same time, it's an exciting text, but at the same time as well, it's a very complex text. It's a difficult text. It's one um, that Christians throughout the centuries have come to different conclusions on and uh, different conclusions about what Jesus is actually saying here. This whole section is known as the Olivet Discourse. And here in Luke, it begins at verse 5 of the 21st chapter, and it goes all the way through verse 36. So we're almost finishing it today. We're going to verse 33. The Olivet Discourse goes to verse 36, though. We call it the Olivet Discourse because of the location of where it was given at. Uh, we catch it at the end of the chapter here in Luke. You can note verse 37 in your Bibles. There he says... It says, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. Now, it should also be noted for us this morning that this text that we're in is what is known as a synoptic text, meaning that the other synoptic gospel accounts tell of this as well. They tell of the same speech that we're studying here. Matthew and Mark, that would be. Matthew and Mark tell about the same Olivet Discourse. In Matthew, it's chapter 24 and 25 in his gospel account. In Mark, it's chapter 13. And I would encourage you, church, to go and read those accounts of this speech sometime later on this Lord's Day to get a fuller picture of what Jesus was communicating to the disciples and again, possibly a crowd that was there. Uh, again, I've, I think I've explained this before, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. John's not a part of that because John is so much different than those other three. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain many of the same stories. They contain many, they take the same flow of uh, events that happened during Jesus' ministry. And so we call them the synoptic. So again, Matthew 24 to 25 and Mark 13 have this same account, but from their own perspective of this Olivet Discourse. So when it comes to this speech, to this Olivet Discourse, Matthew actually gives the most detailed account. I mean, it's two chapters worth, so we could see that. Uh, but in both Matthew and Mark's version, at the start of their section, we see that Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives and he begins this teaching. So it's called the Olivet Discourse. And perhaps you have heard of that name. I think the Olivet Discourse, Nick didn't mention that last week, if I remember right, but I think the Olivet Discourse is a well-known name. It's a well-known portion of Scripture uh, that was, you know, it was delivered by our Lord roughly 2,000 years ago. You've heard, if you haven't heard of the Olivet Discourse before, if you were here last week, you heard half of it. This morning we'll deal with almost the other half of it from Luke's version. But uh, this portion of scripture often comes up when we speak of a very specific 
type of theology, of Christian theology. That is eschatology. This, all of it, discourse, theologians, pastors, the church has for a long time identified it as being a portion that deals with eschatology. That's from the Greek word eschatos and logia, which means logia, the, the study of, eschatos, the last thing. So it's, eschatology means the study of the last things, or in other words, the study of the end times. That's what the Olivet Discourse is referring to. And herein lies the complexity of this passage. This is why there have been so many differing views about what Jesus is actually saying here. What is he warning about? And, and we see this in at least two ways. First off, many of us struggle with understanding the end times portion of Scripture because um, they are prophetic and they are cached in this prophetic language called ap ap apocalyptic uh, literature. Uh, take the book of Revelation, for example. It's loaded with it. Apocalyptic literature is a specific type of prophetic literature that is steeped in symbolism. And we'll see that in our text this morning even. Uh, but what do we make of it? You know, is everything literal? Is everything figurative? Is it a combination of some literal and some figurative? How are we to exactly know? Uh, what are the symbols symbolic of? And so that's where you get all these many differing opinions and views on what Jesus is saying here. So how do we, um, how do we answer or how do we resolve these questions that, that we might have when we approach this text? Well, I think the, the answer for that is careful exegesis. Noting the context from the surrounding passage, as well as the context of all of Scripture, right? The Bible is, we divide it up into 66 books and verses so that we might better uh, know where things are. But in the reality, it is one book. It is the revelation of God to man. And so when we consider context, we, we consider the immediate context that it's around, but also the context of all of Scripture, from Genesis through Revelation, and then we draw the correct meaning from the text. That's what it means to do exegesis. Now, I think that we can do it. I, I hope that we can. And because of God's grace and the spirit that he gives to us, I know that we can. Secondly, this passage is complex. It is difficult because of how it is prophetic. Jesus is telling of future events here, as Pastor Nick preached about last week. Um, some of this prophecy, and, and Nick's the majority of what was said last week in verses 5 through 24, the majority of that was about the immediate future for his listeners. 70 AD, which we know that was when the destruction of Jerusalem took place. And so, he speaks of that, and at the same time, he also speaks about an unknown, a future, a distant judgment. So there's two, there's two uh, views that he, Jesus is speaking about at the very same time. He's speaking about a near future and a far distant future. Truly, those things that were true for the destruction of Jerusalem are foreshadows of what is true for the final judgment, for the consummation of God's kingdom. And beloved, we can be assured of this, that because 
everything that Jesus predicted came true about the destruction of Jerusalem and the abomination of desolation and the armies coming in and besieging it and the destruction of the temple, we can be assured then that if that near future prophecy was fulfilled, that also the far distant prophecy that Jesus is making at the same time will also be fulfilled. What it pertains to the final judgment will also be fulfilled. Um, it will also come true. And so Jesus' words here are just as important for us today as they were for the disciples and the people that were listening to him deliver this speech there on the Mount of Olives. But this is where the complexity comes in. For us especially, you know, 2,000 years after having already lived past the destruction of Jerusalem, how do we know what applies to what is still future? And how do we know what applies to what already happened? What was the near future for his listeners? What is distant future for them and possibly still a distant future for us? What portions are about the immediate future for his hearers and what portion is about the far distant future? Some believers will put all of the Olivet Discourse into the far distant future category. In other words, none of it happened in 70 AD. Maybe they'll say some did, but the majority of it, everything Jesus is talking about here in, in, well, in Luke 21, is something future. None of it has happened yet. Other believers will say that all of it has happened, that everything that Jesus says here in this Olivet Discourse has already happened. It was already all fulfilled in 70 AD. So those are two extremes that you might have within the Christian community. Some uh, would recognize that there is a near and future prophecy being given here, that there is a difference, but don't know where to put the parts exactly. And Lord willing, by His grace, we will, we, will, we will view this text rightly. So that's the complexity. That's the difficulty. It is an exciting passage, but it is a, a difficult one at the same time. Now, with all that being said, I think that we can look at this text, and I think that we could generally or roughly, with broad strokes, give an outline for it. Um, we can draw a conclusion on this matter about the near and distant future. And it's helpful to know that as we, as we consider looking at this passage so we can kind of understand what it is that Jesus is speaking to. So, um, so I want to briefly outline it for us this morning. So roughly, in broad strokes, this chapter deals with the destruction of Jerusalem from verse 5 to 24. So generally speaking, in big sweeping broad strokes, 5 to 24, Jesus is referring to the near future, the destruction of Jerusalem. There's some exception in there, like verse 8 and 9 have clear application to them and to us as well. And Nick you know, addressed that last week. And then in a secondary sense, even these um, passages from 5 to 24 teach us about the final judgment as well. So they foreshadow truth. So in a primary sense, verse 5 through 24 are about the near future, but in a secondary sense, they are about the distant future. Then again, and this is in broad strokes, in 25 to 28, which is part of the text we'll be looking at this morning, that deals um, with the distant future. Jesus is looking beyond the destruction of Jerusalem to the final judgment, to the time of Christ's second coming, to what we call the parousia. It's the, it's the Greek word, the parousia is, it's P-A-R-O-U, 
S-I-A. It is the Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses in the New Testament to describe the second coming, the arrival of Christ, his second coming, the parousia. Um, it's when Jesus comes in power as king and judge and he raptures up the church and brings about his final judgment and he ushers in an eternal age in which we will have new bodies and there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which we can enter the holy city where the radiance of God's glory lights everything. There's no need for a sun and a moon. His brilliance lights it all. And then in a secondary way, those three verses, verses 25 to 28, they portray the near future for his listeners. So the future focus flops in between the two passages. 5 through 24 speak primarily to the near future and secondarily to the, to the distant future. 25 to 28 speak primarily to the distant future, something that hasn't happened yet or it hasn't fully happened yet and then in a secondary way speaks to the near future, those things that already did happen back in 70 AD. But then in verse 29 through 32, Jesus turns again his attention to those that he is speaking to in the present for him concerning the near future and the destruction of Jerusalem. And then finally at verse 33, the last verse we'll look at this morning, at the end, um, and from 33 to the end of this chapter to verse 36, there are exhortations that are equally applicable for the saints who were listening then and who were anticipating this coming destruction of Jerusalem and for us today who are anticipating the second coming of Christ. And of course, see the saints who, who were living back then when Jesus gave this discourse, they too were anticipating the second coming of Christ as well. Jesus is talking about that as well too to them. But of course, the destruction of the temple is, is history for us. So, you have the chapter outlined here with broad strokes, and with broad strokes again, this passage, um, Jesus is, address, is addressing the judgment of God in the destruction of Jerusalem and in the judgment of God in the final judgment that will come at Christ's second coming, at his second advent. That's what, um, so this is what this passage is about. He is wanting to comfort and provide hope unto his disciples, and to us as well too. He wants his disciples to have their eyes fixed towards his second coming. He wants us to be aware of what is happening. He wants us to have our eyes fixed there. And many, um, it's important that we do that because what we think about the end times, what we think about Christ's second coming, affects how we live now. It speaks to that. It's not just some idea, ideology that is off in the distance that doesn't mean something to us right now. What we believe about these things affects how we live here and today. Uh, many people don't give much thought to the passages that deal with the end times, though, to eschatology, because well, they're, they're hard to understand. They are, they are hard to understand, if we're being honest here. They are difficult. And also because we know how it all ends. You know, Christ is victorious. Sometimes that is a comfort to us when we approach these texts that are difficult. We know that in the end, Jesus wins and that we win because he wins. And so that is a comfort to us. But I would encourage you, friends, beloved, to labor in the word of God for your sanctification, to, under, to seek to understand these things, to not just pass them off as an area of the scripture that's too hard for me or too difficult for me to really study these texts because uh, 
it's very important that we do so. He gives us his word. God gives us his word so that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. So, and consider as well, too, that these words in all of that discourse are some of the final words that Jesus speaks here during his ministry. Right after this, all of that discourse is done, the uh, beginning in chapter 22 for Luke, the path to the cross is very much accelerated. Um, at that point, there's a couple of speeches that Jesus gives, like he sets up the Lord's Supper with his disciples. There's a discussion that he has with Pilate as well, too. And there's the, the passion story and all that comes with it, his words on the cross, of course. But this, all of that discourse, is the last teaching that we get from Jesus that was, you know, in a, in a public setting. That wasn't just to the disciples and or the apostles. So it's, it's important. So this, this passage is marked by finality. Christ Jesus knows what's coming soon after this. And so he makes sure to say what he says here before that all happens. It's important that we know these things. They affect the way that we live. They affect the way that we think about this world and how we should respond to the things that are happening. So, if you'll turn your attention to Luke uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 25, we'll read God's word together. Before we do that, though, let's pray briefly together that, that the Holy Spirit would give to us understanding. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Spirit, you are God, and we need you. We thank you for your word. Help us to not take it lightly. Lord, we approach this text this morning admitting our feebleness, admitting our weakness, and we ask that you would give to us understanding that we might rightly divide your word. Your word is truth. It is life-giving. Help us to know it and to know you and to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the reading of the word of God beginning at verse 25 in the 21st Gospel of Luke. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. So, so remember... This Olivet Discourse, this portion of the Olivet Discourse is, on, is one in which Jesus is speaking of the distant future here at the beginning in 25 through 28, and then he transitions to the near future. It's the distant future that is primarily spoken of and the near future in a secondary manner in this text. Uh, we should note that there is a criticism of the Christian teaching on the end times. There's a 
criticism of the Bible's teaching on the last things that goes something like this. You might have heard it before. It says, um, you know, because the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again and that this heaven and that this earth will pass away and, and that this age will pass away, and that there'll be new heavens and a new earth and that there will be an age to come, this keeps Christians from being interested in, from being involved in, and from being effective in this life in this world. I think that we as a church do a good job of that not being true, but it's something that people think. In fact, there's even a, a slogan for this particular view of the end times. You've perhaps heard it in the individual. He's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Well, that's just a slogan that some people have coined over the time when it comes to the end times as a, as a reason to, to, to not care about them. Well, Jesus' teaching here totally contradicts that slogan. It totally puts that slogan on its, on its head. Uh, that criticism misunderstands what the Bible is teaching, what Jesus is teaching on the end times, on the last things. Jesus' teaching about the last things is designed to equip us to live today for His glory. It doesn't lead us to withdraw from involvement in the world. It shouldn't lead us to idleness as it seems to have done for some professing saints in Thessalonica when the Apostle Paul addressed that church there. Um, it doesn't lead us from engagement from disengagement with the world, but it brings us to engagement with the world. It brings us to bear Christian influence on the world. It brings us to being salt and light on a dark world. Uh, and it, it equips us to do those things. And Jesus shows us specifically how to do that here in this Olivet Discourse in, in several ways. And I want to concentrate on two things for us in the portion of the Olivet Discourse that we're going over this morning. Um, and again, you know, this morning what we're going over is a complex and a difficult passage. But those two things that I want to speak about primarily are confidence and trust. Confidence because who is it that is teaching these things in this Olivet Discourse? It's Christ Jesus. He is the one who is coming again. He is the one who in himself fulfilled the law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Covenant and all the covenants leading up to the revelation of Jesus Christ and the institution of the New Covenant, they all pointed to Jesus, who he was and what it is that he would do. All of the priests, the prophets, and the kings of Israel, they were all offices that God had set up so that they would testify to what it is that Jesus would do. Christ himself, he is the priest. He is the sacrificial lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He is the only mediation between God and man. He is the, the one who makes intercession for God's people, and he only did it one time. It was only necessary that one time. He is the king, the one who rightly rules over all creation. He is you know, even the creator himself. Uh, everything that exists is from him, through him, and for him, uh, and to him. And he is the prophet, literally in himself. He is the truth. God's word is truth, and Christ is the word of God made flesh. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's, again, he's the only mediation between God and man. And even more, you know, he is God himself. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega. So we should have confidence that what he is saying will happen will actually happen as he said it will happen. And then also we trust and we should trust. We should be thinking about trusting Jesus here in this passage. The world won't be thinking about trusting Jesus when it comes to these sorts of things. They'll be perplexed by his words. They'll be perplexed by the signs that he's giving even. But for us, as we hear Jesus teaching about his second coming in this passage and the tribulations that Christians will experience, we realize that it is all designed to equip us for living a Christian life, a godly life, while we are sojourners here in this world. But to do that, you know, we must trust him and be looking to him. So, the first thing that we learn is that the believer is to face these things with confidence. Listen to the cataclysmic, to the apocalyptic words that Jesus uses in this passage. There is 25 and 26. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, on the earth, distress of nations, in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming in the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's a terrifying image. It's a terrifying image of what is to happen. Despite all the things that could be confusing about this passage, one thing should be clear to us from it. The second coming of the Lord will be accompanied by all the kinds of things that are terrifying to mankind. All the kinds of things that puts the world into panic. The kinds of things that bring death and life to the forefront of our minds. The sort of things that grab the attention of mankind. There are terrible circumstances that accompany the parousia, the second coming of Jesus. Think of the terror that Israel and Moses experienced when God revealed himself to them on Mount Sinai after their redemption out of Egypt. They get to a specific point of the wilderness, Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses up there that he might you know, give to him his word. Hebrews 12, 18 to 21 captures it for us. You can keep your finger in Luke and look there in Hebrews. Just a few books over in the New Testament. <clears throat> so chapter 12, verse 18 through 21 captures this experience. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is that's Moses talking about his experience of this Lord's coming of the Lord coming to him. And so this greater revealing of God that won't be localized to just one mountain that will affect the whole world when Christ comes back a second time, when God comes to the earth in that manner. It's not just in one place, it is the whole world that is affected the terror of it is surely greater. So again, consider the imagery that Jesus uses here. Signs in the sun, 
moon, stars, the powers of the heavens shaken, nations distressed over disasters and people afraid. Does that all sound familiar? It, it should sound familiar for two reasons. So the first familiar reason, it should sound familiar to us because this is the same sort of language that scripture always employs when significant world-altering events are about to take place. For one, it takes us back to the verses that we just went over last week even. Note the similarity there in the portion of this discourse that was primarily about the near future and the destruction of Jerusalem. It's verse 10 in Luke 21. There he says, uh, it says, verse 10, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So Jesus says essentially the same things about the near future as he does here in 25 and 26 about the far distant future. Essentially the same things. Nations distressed, disasters coming. Both of these passages contain those things. But even more, the Old Testament is filled with this sort of language. There are dozens of examples to consider. We'll look at just a few that we might note it so that we can be rightly tuned in when we read the Old Testament as well, um, when we read God's Word. In Isaiah, we read of the impending judgment of God on Babylon. And when he describes it in this way, it's Isaiah 13, verse 9 and 10. There he says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. So again, signs in the sun, the moon, the stars. Concerning the destruction of Egypt, so a world-changing event, right? The judgment of Babylon. Uh, concerning the destruction of Egypt, again, another world power at the time. Ezekiel wrote in Ezekiel 32, verse 7 and 8. He says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make the stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you, and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. So again, the same type of language, nations distress, signs, disasters. Or again in Isaiah, but this time, judgment upon Edom. It's Isaiah 34, 4-5. through 5. There he says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies will roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves from the falling tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. So again, nations distressed, signs in the heavens, people in trouble. This is the kind of language that God uses when he is wanting to describe a significant change in, in a world-altering event that, it, that is going to take place. He employs this sort of language so that we, want, we might be aware of the seriousness of this matter. And by the way, if the parousia and the consummation of the kingdom of God is not a world-altering event, then nothing is. It is 
Christ's second coming is the world-altering event. There will be nothing that can compare to it. The flood that happened in, Mo in Noah's day, <laughs> not Moses, but Noah's day, or noses, in Noah's, in Noah's day, uh, that can't hold a candle to what is happening at Christ's second coming, where everything will be made new. So we should be confident that Christ is going to return, church. When God uses this sort of language to make a point, we should know that it is coming, that it is going to come to pass. It did in the past. In all of those texts that we read, the world event that was portrayed with that apocalyptic language, it came to pass. Babylon was destroyed. Edom, Edom was destroyed. Uh, Egypt was toppled. That tells you that you can read this passage here in Luke chapter 21 and you can know that God will do it, that Christ will return, that he will put an end to his enemies, that he will put an end to the sin that you commit, that he will give to you that eternal rest that you've already begun, begun to take advantage of, to take part of, that he will give to you the rest of the inheritance of Christ that Christ has earned for you. Now, the second reason that this sort of language should be familiar to us is because in a very real sense, we are living it. Just turn on the evening news, or, or maybe don't, because you know, if, it, if it depresses you, uh, we don't have to go back very far, just to the middle of summer, I think, and you have signs in the stars, disasters, nations distressed, and people panicking. There was the, the solar eclipse that many people made a big deal over here in August. Um, and, and of course, you know, there were those false teachers who sprang up right around the time and said that this, this total eclipse is going to coincide with the second coming of Christ. Uh, some saw it as a message from God. And of course, you know, there has been the political and the social turmoil that has, that has been associated with the Trump presidency. There have been a number of marches and protests that have ended violently. There was the, the recent tragedy in Las Vegas. Un unthinkable what happened there. Of course, there is, there is the potential threat of something popping off with, with North Korea. There's wars, rumors of wars. People are afraid. There have been uh, powerful and destructive hurricanes on the East Coast. We can't neglect to mention the disasters that have been happening as, as well in this time period. These powerful and destructive hurricanes that have hit the, the East Coast, battering the East Coast and the Gulf Coast um, and, and, and the islands of those regions. The power and the destruction of those storms has, has been terrible. Houston, you know, a pillar of progressive engineering and industry just, just ravaged by a storm. The amount of water dumped into that location is, is absolutely mind-blowing. They measured that the estimate is somewhere around 33 trillion gallons of water from that one storm was put onto Houston. For, to try to get an image of this, which I think is still impossible to do, that much water would form a cube that is 2.8 miles by 2.8 miles square. 33, 33 trillion gallons of water dumped in one storm. Then there's the damage to Florida. 
the Caribbean islands, Puerto Rico, and the cities up and down the East Coast. But that's not it. Here on the West Coast, fires are ripping through not just hills, but communities. What has happened, what is still happening in Santa Rosa and the whole, and in Napa is a, it's a state of emergency. The, the before and the after pictures have been heartbreaking. It's just communities flattened. I've never seen something like that from just a fire. My whole life, I've lived in the Bay Area 37 years now. Not once can I remember schools shutting down because the air quality is so poor due to fires. And that happened two times last week. The schools in our area all closed on Thursday and Friday because the quality of the air due to the fires uh, made it not, not safe. We couldn't have our kids club outreach because the school uh, down the street was closed. And we are roughly 80 miles from where that fire is taking place. And the air quality here is bad. Can you imagine what the air must be like there around it? I can't. So <coughs> nations are distressed. This nation is distressed. There has been so much to take in lately, so much sorrow. And for us, it is a time to weep with those who weep. And it is also a time to be very clear about the gospel with the lost. That in a very real sense, these events and events like them portray that final judgment that is to come. They remind us that that Christ's return is, imi is imminent. And everyone not in Christ, everyone not united to Christ in faith, trusting the God-man Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, those people will suffer an eternal hell. God, the sovereign God over all creation, is ordaining these things to happen. They are signs that point to His imminent coming. And though they are tragic, they do not amount to meaningless suffering. There is purpose in them. They are times when people are alarmed, when the distractions of the day don't hold power over people that they normally do. And we should use these things to lovingly proclaim the gospel to the lost, to lovingly do it, not to, to shove the Bible down someone's throat as they're hurting, but to preach Christ to them, to let them know the weight of sin and the chains that it brings, and that there is freedom to be found in Christ. We must tell them of this Jesus who is Lord and Savior, who is God, who is greater than any of these terrible circumstances that anybody might be facing. There is no political power that can match his might. He raises up kings and kingdoms and he tears them down. Consider the, the fourth chapter of Daniel in which we learn of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon, a nation that God raised up to judge Israel, one of the most affluent nations that has ever existed, had so much power and wealth, conquered so many places in that area of the world all those years ago. And then at the height of their glory, the king of Babylon uh, is humbled. God even sends to him his prophet Daniel to warn him of what will happen if he's not humbled. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take it in, and so he receives a humiliation. He is humbled. King Nebuchadnezzar lives as an animal, hair grown, nails grown, clothes dingy. He ate grass like a cow would. This was the king of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. 
any deity he thought he had was gone, stripped away from him. Any majesty he had, it was a gift from the Lord, and it was all gone until God restored to him his reason. His sovereignty, God's sovereignty over people is total. And then, then you have you know, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, give one of the most profound exhortations of God's glory in, in Scripture, of who God is and his right to be God. There in Daniel chapter 4, you should, you should read it. Be, be familiar with it. You see God's sovereignty over people is total. His sovereignty over nations is total. Jesus is greater than any, any nation. And then also, you have his lordship over the creation, uh, over the creation in general. Remember back in Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 22, we have this scene in which the disciples and Jesus are crossing Lake Galilee. They're traveling, they're doing ministry, they're healing the sick, they're giving sight to the blind, they're casting out demons, they're announcing the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is uh, telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. And they get into a boat to cross the Lake of Galilee. And as they do that, you know, Jesus is tired and he goes to sleep in the lower chambers of, the, of the, the boat. And a great storm comes on to Lake Galilee. And the disciples, they are freaking out over this. There's water coming onto the boat, we read. And you have to remember that the disciples, they're from this region there. You know, some of them were even fishermen themselves before they became apostles and before God um, called them to do the work of ministry. They knew exactly what was about to happen with this kind of a storm. They've seen it happen before. They were about to die. This storm was going to kill them here on this lake of Galilee. It was that sort of a storm. They were terrified. And then, so they, they go down into the sleeping chamber of the boat because that's where Jesus is. And that's an amazing thing in and of itself. God, the second person of the Trinity, who holds the universe together by his power, asleep in the bottom of this boat, He's take, he has a human nature now. He's truly man, truly God at the same time in one person, asleep on the boat. And the disciples are terrified, so they go down to him. Death is coming. And they, so they go down to him and they wake him up and they say, Master, Master, we are perishing. What, what did they expect him to do? I'm not sure because what he did do surprised them. He gets up, and then we read that he rebukes the wind and the raging waves. He, he, he speaks to them, and he tells them to stop, in other words. And at that rebuke from Jesus, the waves ceased, and we read in the text that there was calm. This storm that threatened death had no power over the God who made all things. And the disciples' response at this point is amazing. They were afraid. They were terrified. I, I'm saying, I don't know what they expected Jesus to do. I thought maybe, maybe they were just thinking they were letting him know that we need to abandon ship or do something. But they were terrified because they said, at the end of all that, they said, what sort of man is this that commands wind and water and they obey him? Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign over all people in every way. He is Lord and sovereign over creation in every way. And so as we see these types of things happening, we could have confidence in Christ because he's not just a man, beloved. He is the God-man, the promised Savior and only hope for salvation. So we must 
tell people of this Jesus and his salvation against these signs of these times. We must do it lovingly, not berating people with the truth of God, not lacking empathy and kindness, but we must, we must still tell of sin and repentance. And we can have confidence as well in the power of God in the gospel to do what it has power to do, to save sinners. It worked in our lives. It will work in the lives of others. So we must tell people, and also, we must help meet their physical needs as well, too. We can't remember that, especially in light of these types of tragedies that we've been forced to deal with over these past few months, just recently. Uh, for remember 1 John three seventeen to 18? He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, when these types of things happen, fires, storms, there are people in need, most certainly, says, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? And point being, it, it doesn't, if you're doing that. Little, then he says in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, Jesus does offer some comments about what to think about these things in our text, and I'll get to those, but first I wanted to mention one other thing that is important for us in making sense of this passage. Having just said all that I did about the recent tragedies, you must be careful to not make this mistake. When we consider these things, we are not to open up a newspaper and then interpret the Bible by it. <coughs> by that I mean we aren't to get all worked up because we see all these things happening right now and then we read a text like we have for this morning and then base our theology off of the news. Rather, instead, we take what we know is true in God's word and in scripture and we determine the signs from it. And here's what we note if we do that. There has, there has been, and especially since the time of the resurrection of Christ, there has always been these sorts of signs all across the world. The second coming of Christ concerns more than just USA, right? It is a world-altering event. It is more than just about America, in the North America, I should say, in the United States. Uh, celestial signs are always happening. You would be hard-pressed to find a time in history when there was not wars and rumors of wars. Uh, consider Europe in, like, in the Middle Ages, all the time, constantly at war, every, every single day. Earthquakes and other disasters are common throughout history as well. Perhaps they are increasing in rate. I do not know. I'm not sure. Some things are. Most likely that is true. Some things probably are not. But if you were to Google these kinds of, of things, there would be no shortage of websites telling you that all these things mean the end is any day now. But to make that sort of claim would be to interpret the Bible from the news, not the other way around. Christ's return is imminent. That is true. It is near. That's what that means. But it is always imminent as we live in this time between his first and second coming. He may come today. He may come in the distant future. But he will come. That is the promise that we have. Christ came once. He will come again. And that will be it. Then comes the judgment. We have been in the last days since Jesus ascended to heaven. Holy Scripture spills a lot of ink on the return of Christ and what the world will be like in the last days. There's the Olivet Discourse here in the Synoptics. First uh, and Second Thessalonians talks about it. Second Peter, Revelation, of course. Many of the Old Testament prophets allude to it and many other places as well. And we need to consider all of it, not just letting what we hear on the news drive our theology. 
So, as I was saying earlier, Jesus does offer some instruction for us in light of the prophecy he makes. And Jesus says this in the face of this. He says, in, in the face of these dramatic and sometimes even cataclysmic things, believers are to be confident. They're to face these things with confidence. Listen to how he speaks of it. We'll look at verse 27 in a moment. But look what he says in 28. He says, when you see these things take place, what is your response? Are you to fear and be filled with foreboding like the unbelievers? Are you supposed to panic like the world does? You know, global warming is destroying the world. Is that what we're supposed to do in this situation? No, listen to what he says in verse 28. Straighten up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus says that as you see these terrible things taking place around you, your response is to not be filled with fear and foreboding, not to be depressed because of the combination of all of them, but to be confident because your king is coming. Your redemption is drawing near. The kingdom of God is near. His kingdom is returning soon. Uh, because of Christ, because of grace, because of the gospel, what should terrify the world, and it does terrify the world, should actually comfort believers. Because when we see this kind of tribulation, our response is to straighten up, to look up, to be eternally minded, and to, to be energized, to reach out to the lost to know that what our God said is going to happen will be happening. And the day of our redemption draws near. I love what J.C. Ryle says about this. He says, The very hour that the worldly man's hopes shall perish shall be the hour when the believer's hope shall be exchanged for joyful certainty and full possession. And so Jesus says, remember now when you see these great signs and when you see these trials and these tribulations, your response is not trembling because, excuse me, because when I come for you, there will be, it will be a great day of celebration for you. All the things that you've waited for, they will now be your possession. The place I've been preparing for you is ready. You are co-heirs with me. That's what Jesus is saying. It is a terrible day for those that are lost, most certainly. But for those who are awaiting Christ's coming, it is a, it's a wonderful day. You know, when we read the Bible, what the Bible says about the end, it's an awesome thing. And it does often cause believers to tremble. But Jesus is saying, you know, as, as awesome as these things are that surround my coming, the ultimate response of the believer to them is that there ought to be confidence and rejoicing because his coming is good news for those, who have, for those who have embraced the good news, for those who have embraced the gospel. If by grace you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel, his coming is the best possible news that you could ever experience in this sin-sick world. And so Jesus is saying, have confidence. Even these signs, the believer ought to respond in confidence. And then secondly here, trusting in the Lord. He goes on to emphasize that we need to be prepared and trusting in a trusting way for His coming. We are ready for His return in a confident way, but we also need to be ready for His return in a trustful way. And we'll see that in the two statements He makes in this passage. So now we can look at verse 27. After these great signs that He describes in verse 25 and 26 are seen, He says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. 
Now, you know this title, this, this title, Son of Man, we've talked about it before. It is a reference back to Jan Daniel chapter 9, verse 13. And the Son of Man who appears in that passage there in Daniel, who appears before the Ancient of Days in that passage, he is given a kingdom that will not end. And this is an indication of Jesus claiming deity right here when he's saying this. He's claiming to his listeners that he is God. One coming on a cloud with power and glory. That's a picture of God in the Old Testament. So this is a very clear and emphatic indication that Je of Jesus to his disciples that he is God. And God is trustworthy. We are to think of the glory cloud that filled the temple and the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. Or how did God lead Israel in redemption from Egypt? A pillar of fire by night and a cloud in, by day. Christ is God. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is truly divine as well as truly human. And he's saying this to evoke trust in his disciples and in us, his disciples as well. In other words, we are to have hope in this one that, that you should trust, church. Our Savior isn't some mere political power, not some nation. Our Savior is God himself. And we should note also that his second coming isn't going to be some secret event, some whisper in the dark. No, rather, it is like a lightning bolt that crosses the sky. It is something that the whole world will take note of. And through it all, when he comes, it's going to be public. He's going to come with the armies of heaven at his disposal. And through it all, we will be safe. Through it all, we will endure the trials we go through, the persecutions we go through now, the persecutions we endure now, just even thinking about this glorious truth is a support to us because we know that those things aren't forever. They are momentary afflictions. For when, but when Christ comes back, he will swallow up death. We can stand up straight because our redemption is near. And then he says what we covered earlier in verse 28, what I just alluded to, that we can stand up straight, our redemption is drawing near. And remember, all of these signs are concerning the distant future for his hearers. They had no idea how distant it was, nor do we for that matter. Uh, men, men do try to make guesses about when this would be, about when Christ will return, only though to sully the name of Christ. The unbelieving world mocks the church because they predict, when they see these types of signs, they predict, oh, Christ is coming back. And then, so our response in that is that we should try to, to you know, let the world know that those people don't represent what is truly true. Um, so we should speak out against those false prophets when we get a chance. But note what Jesus does next. He gives them a short parable. Now remember, I attempted to give a short outline of this passage at the onset of our time together this morning. So this passage that we have been mostly focusing on so far, 25 through 28, I point out that it's primarily about the distant future. But in a broad stroke sense, it is about the near future, what was going to happen in 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. So as we approach this parable, the best way to make sense of it, I think, is to see that Jesus is, at, is once again referring to the near future, the secondary meaning of the previous passage, especially because of verse 32. Listen to again what he says. We're wrapping up soon. I know we're going late. Uh, verse 29 says, And he told them a parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. So 
he's telling them to be watchful because this coming destruction of Jerusalem is near. They can look at a tree, a fig tree, all the trees, he says, and by looking at how it changes, they can know that a new season is near. So if they are to pay attention to the things that are happening, the things that Pastor Nick went over last week, and other things as well, which Matthew and Mark's account tell us, such as like the abomination of desolation, they can know that Jerusalem's destruction is near. The old covenant is to be fully done away with uh, forever. And remember from last week that these things would be an indication for them to flee. That when they saw these signs, they weren't to just stay and buckle down and try to, try to prevent them from happening. They were to flee because God had ordained these things to come to pass. They will surely come to pass. And then that idea is cemented in verse 32. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. We should look ourselves at the signs that we see and remember to interpret them by God's word. But this comment about this generation not passing away, it puts the prophetic text back in the context of the near future. Then, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will certainly not pass away. It is a provocative statement. Jesus, the Lord of creation, is saying creation itself lacks permanence, but my words, they are permanent. They are everlasting. They will never go away. They will never wear out. That build, this building that we're gathered in to get today to worship the Lord, it will not last forever. But Jesus' words will. It's an outstanding claim. And of course, to any believer familiar with the Old Testament, it, it might remind you of a couple of texts, specifically Isaiah 40, 6-8, especially verse 8 might be familiar to you. It says, The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of God endures forever. It stands forever. And so here's Jesus saying, my words endure forever. My words will last longer than this world. The heavens and the earth, they will pass away, but his words are more permanent than creation itself. And why is he saying this? Because he's saying this to his disciples because he wants them to count on his words. They want, he wants them to be able to trust him. He wants us to be able to trust him as well, too. He says, you can count on my words. You can trust them. More than likely, he's anticipating that people are going to scoff at this prophecy of his, that they'll just assume the world is going to go on like it always has, like these types of changes that Jesus is talking about, that he's just, he's in error. And so he's anticipating that people are going to say that, and he comforts his disciples by telling them that this world will pass away, but his words are permanent. And same way he did in verse 33, he's telling us all, believe what I'm saying to you. Don't be discouraged by the words of skepticism that you hear from those who do not believe my words. You can trust my words. They'll never go away. That's what he's telling us. And of course, that's a statement that only God can make. Only God himself can make that. What right does Jesus of Nazareth have to make that sort of claim if he's just a man? He has no right to do so. It would be like me saying that my words would outlast this nation. But more than that even, Jesus isn't saying that his words won't just outlast Israel. He's saying that it will outlast the world, the heavens itself. The present world is coming to an end, church. And according to Christ, it will be recreated. But Jesus' words will stand through that fire. 
they will remain. This statement parallels the passage from Isaiah, and, and only God could say something like that. Jesus could say these things then, and he says them so that we might face his second coming with trust in him, with confidence in him through it all. He is our hope in these end times. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is true, and I thank you so much for giving it to us, for helping us to know you, to know what we are to expect, Lord. Give us eyes that see. Help us to know the signs according to your word. Help us to not be like the world, to be trembling against these things, but give us strength that we might reach out into this lost world to proclaim your good news. It is the only hope for this sin-sick world. It is our only hope, Lord, but we cannot do it on ourselves. We need your grace. We need you, and we thank you for loving us in the way that you do. We ask that you would come quick, Christ, that you would gather all of your elect unto yourself for your glory's sake and that you would help us to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.